how do we use Web3 to reduce corruption? How do we use Web3 to bring transparency and systems which need transparency? How do we build trust, more trust in some consortiums, etc.? How do we bring more data trust? How the user can know that their data is not being used maliciously? I think these problems can be solved by technology. That was Sandy Fatik, the founder and CEO at Calamera Network. During this episode, you're going to get a primer into Calamera Network. And while I know that Sandy has had other appearances since the recording of this episode, because, well, we recorded a few weeks ago and uh, I got COVID twice and a bit busy, <laughs> you will get to hear from Sandy in a unique way. Unscripted, without any time constraints, just a nice old conversation between two friends exploring each other's curiosity. What I really enjoyed about this episode is that Sandy is equally humble as he is smart. So it was a really natural transition between topics and every tangent that we explored, it just blew my mind. There was a level of insight and even humor that I wasn't expecting. Conversation ranges from the pragmatic, no-nonsense business advice, such as why you should really care about your customer and it is all about user experience, all the way to the philosophical, such as what is trust and why should we care? I really hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, let's jump in. Enjoy! Hello, friends. Welcome back to another Wild User Interviews with me, AVB. Today, I am thrilled to have with me Sandy Fatik, the founder and CEO of Calimero. Welcome, Sandy. Welcome, AVB. Nice there for the invite, and I hope we have a nice discussion. I am sure it is going to be amazing. Just for a bit of context for people listening, we actually had a call last week and we just ended the call early like, hey, we should just have this on a podcast because we were just having such a good time. Now we're back in front of the mic. Yes, we left the best parts for the podcast. So I think we could just jump in, explain maybe background of myself, my co-founder Mario, and answer any questions you have. Yes, please. So why don't you start telling us who you are, how you came to be into the near ecosystem and an overview of what you're doing now with Calimero. Essentially, I started my career in engineering what, like 10 years ago. I had two internships at Google. Once I worked in production security, once I was working on G Suite, building DMOPs for like various enterprise customers. And then after that, I had several startups. All of them failed, unfortunately. Worked in a layer one in 2017, not very famous. Now learned basics about blockchain, basics about like how, how consensuses work. Got very excited about the Web3 space and then joined Facebook. Um, after that, spent two years at Facebook, worked on release engineering at Facebook. Essentially, job was how do we prevent that Facebook goes down? How do we prevent or build best tools to ensure like reliability and security inside the Facebook web? And then after that, like near a protocol reached out to me. They found me on LinkedIn. They were looking for somebody who had blockchain experience and somebody who had both release or infrastructure experience. And like back then, there was not many people who knew one. And now having the combination of two, it's like even less common. Even now in these days, it's very hard to find good infrastructure engineers working in the Web3 space. I think that's slowly changing because like more and more people realize the benefits of working in this space. So I decided to join Near. I joined as the first infrastructure person on the team. My co-founder Mario was a longtime friend of mine. So he joined from Deliveroo after me uh, to Near as well. Essentially, we grinded for two years, built out the infrastructure, made sure the releases are timely, that we have 
proper monitoring, proper infra to make sure NIR doesn't stop, uh, NIR works fully. And then last year at NIRCON, I started talking to Ilya about some 20% projects to spend some of my time working on something else. And we, I had some ideas about federated systems and I really believe that privacy is important and I believe that not everything should live on the main chain. There's use cases where privacy is important, where scaling is important, but regulations are a thing, they exist. So he was like, oh, let's start working on this private sharding thing. We had some ideas internally how we want to build it, but nobody was like actively working on it. So I took over the responsibility of learning, building the first MVP, then fundraising, and then we built out a team and now we are live on testnet. Hopefully we're launching mainnet soon as well. So that was an amazing overview. There was a lot to unpack there. I don't know if you saw me throughout just like laughing and holding back a really big smile because you said that you're we're tasked with keeping near online. And that reminded me of a really funny tweet from you that I saw recently. I'm not even sure if you were meant to be funny, but I think that you quote tweeted Solana status update and you were like, yeah, this is really not good. This was my job at Nier and this is just not good performance. So I guess that on behalf of the Nier ecosystem, thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate that <laughs> the work has been done in the early days to make sure that the right infrastructure is in place and we're still online. I think it's very important. Like every protocol should have priority number zero, reliability, scalability, and security. We are building a future for billions of users eventually, and we cannot afford downtime in these kind of systems because they're payment systems, they're social networks, they are gaming companies. And now it's, I like to say it's like this goes down. Like AWS has very high SLAs and they have to run uptime all the time because the world depends on them. And I think now in the Web3 space, you know, it's very the same. More and more apps are running on top of blockchains and we really have to make sure that uptime and reliability and security, obviously, is like first priority. As an infrastructure engineer, that may be obvious, but I saw a tweet from a good friend, actually, someone I respect. I like his work. He's actually in the Solana ecosystem. And he was like, look, no one really cares about the network going down every once in a while. As long as the price of the token goes up, the ecosystem grows. And I was like, I'm not really sure that equation holds true into the future because I was even thinking of some big deals that Solana has had. I think it was like a Deutsche Telekom or big established corporates and Web2 types. They need uptime and they can't really, I guess their threshold for the pay point is much low. Maybe Web2 early adopters are happy to endure the network going down every once in a while during the early days. But yeah, something not good enough for the real world. I agree. Like this line between Web 2 and Web 3, it's, I think, very mapped out one-to-one. -one. In 2000s, you didn't have good internet. So if YouTube was very slow or applications were breaking, people had the benefit and early adopters just enjoyed it and lived through it. But now when you have billions of users, imagine Facebook goes down for a day or imagine a bank goes down for a day, it will be Pretty, pretty bad. They have gone down sparingly and people genuinely think, is there a war going on? Have we been new? What is going on? It is like a major outage and it really impairs a bunch of industries. So yeah, exactly. And you can never prevent going down. Software is written by humans. Humans make mistake, mistakes and there's nothing you can really prevent it 100%, but priorities should be that you do your best and implement tools and testing and various release process management tool, like 
ideas to make sure that you mitigate the risk. Like anything in life, if you go to an insurance company, there's risk reward. If you go to a bank, there's AML and like different tools, which profile you as a person or as a government or as a company, how risky a decision is or not. And I think these same things apply to, to, to this space as well. If you hold billions of funds and you get hacked, it's much more worse if you have $1 million of funds. So it's uh, at which stage of, of, of the evolution we are at now. The beautiful thing about the free market is that, that risk reward uh, calculation is actually done by everyone. So if you're a hacker, <laughs> you also go for the billion dollar fund. And if you are a project looking to build, you should be looking into which blockchain has infrastructure and has a team to support it. If you're a user or an investor, you should also be looking for those things. That's why I really enjoy that you ran through your experience. You have startups, you have a layer one in 2017. You've got Facebook, your co-founder had Deliveroo. So maybe let's just start to unpack a little bit how each one of those experiences have shaped where you are now, because I feel like the team is something that a lot of people take for granted. I see a lot of new layer ones and different projects. It could be in any category, really popping up all the time. And even though the idea may be sexy or the branding is appealing, there's a bit of momentum, the question really should be, can the team execute? So yeah, why don't you tell us which layer one were you in 2017? Oh, I would not disclose that. They're not pretty famous, but I would not play. I would, yeah, let's call that one. No, we know that we're pretty famous now. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, very topical. I respect your privacy on that one. Without disclosing the actual chain, were there like any major lessons that stood out to you back then of the blockchain ecosystem at the time? My opinion is any business or any protocol uh, in general, it, it, especially in this space or like Web2 space, it, it's a combination of two things. Executing on the technical side, but also executing on the business. In the blockchain space, in Web3 space, if you cannot execute technically, your blockchain will not scale, your blockchain will have bugs, your blockchain will not be sustainable. And most likely long-term, you will not succeed. But then on the other side as well, like even if you get the tech right, you have to understand business and user users. First of all, user experience, user acquisition, how to build the best models. How I really see it is like a combination of, of these tools. In my past experience, even in the startups I worked in, the startups I founded, you have to find the balance of how, what stage the company is. If you're an early stage company, it's about building the product and getting the early adopters. In a stage later on, it's about, okay, how do we get revenue? How do we build scalable teams? How do we ensure that there's things which minimize the things which will go wrong? And then at a scale-up stage, obviously, it's more about, you know, how do you bring the big enterprises? How do you bring big solutions? How do you find the killer use case, which you can bring 1 billion uh, users? And, and currently, I, I think in the Web3 space, we are in the third phase. I think like the technology part is, we figured out, yes, I think we figured out a bunch of, of things which need to happen. We as in the near ecosystem, Calimero, or we collectively? Because I think some people are a bit stuck along the way. I think in the Web3 space, I think there's like evolution and engineering takes time. If you take, for example, neural networks were developed as a con concept in 1970s. And they were like, they didn't go off until 2010 because it took them 30, 40, 50 years of whatever research to actually realize the potential and how we can benefit from it. And that was like due to technology, due to market situation, due to hardware and many things like this. And I think it's the same now in the web space. I think we have a clear understanding that the sharding is way to go. How do we build technology? 
generally we have to implement a bunch of things. We understand from web to what are the, how do you see the ends? Like what should be centralized? What should be decentralized? How do you build smart contracts? The developers want to use JavaScript instead of learning new tools. All of this stuff is kind of like, we have a pretty decent knowledge, in my opinion, of what needs to happen from the technical side. The question, which we usually at Calimero, we are obviously a very deep IT tech company, but like we have a very strong technical team, so it's easy to solve these problems. What kind of keeps us at night is like, how do we bring these enterprises? How do we bring these big companies? How do we provide the best user experience to developers building on top of us? And that's something which I think Nier did a really good job. And I think they have to continue doing a good job on, on doing this. But there's a long road ahead. It's going to take probably two, three more years to get to a point where we can see mass adoption. Interesting. For people listening that may not be familiar with the concept, how would you describe neural networks? How would I describe neural networks? Your brain is a big neural network. Essentially, neuron is a small mechanism which fires off electricity or doesn't fire electricity. And there's synapses between them. And the synapses figure out how much of signal to send. And essentially, once your brain develops from a baby to a human, these synapses learn with some pattern recognitions and things, how to trigger right electrical signals to do something. So like how to learn some concept, for example, reading. When you try to read, you learn your neurons to do read one letter and then to word sentences, words, sentences, etc. So it's the same concept in machines. You replicate these neurons signaling some functions based on the input. There's like inputs and some output. That's how our brains work. And like, obviously our brains have many millions, uh, hundreds of millions of neurons. Computers have smaller amounts because our brain is the most powerful computer in the world. For now, that's going to change. Uh, so I am think like there's one very Not even that far from now, probably we're going to have some a general intelligent, maybe 10, 15, 20, 50 years. But I think in my lifetime, we're going to have a pretty good, decent AI to do certain things. I agree. From a Marvel perspective, neural networks to me, is just the way that a ton of information is interconnected. And the way that you can feed those connections to just keep building and improving on themselves. I'm just wondering, what was the catalyst around 2010 that made your networks possible? Was it the fundamental technology to be able to process the amount of information? Was it the ability to capture all the information combined with the processing power? I believe it was like sets of multiple factors. Google and Facebook has shown that if you have a lot of data, you can generate really good models. Usually before that, there was not neural networks, but I think in, in the 2010s, people started playing out uh, with neural networks and there was like two major uh, kind of frameworks which were launched. One was PyTorch, one was TensorFlow. Uh, Ilya, the founder of, of Near, actually worked on TensorFlow. So that's also one, one interesting fact. Uh, but I think these frameworks were very easily accessible. They were open source. Everybody could use them. And then on top of that hardware, it got to a point where you could actually run trainings of neural networks. Like we had this NVIDIA craze of GPU cards where you can run trainings of these models very efficiently. And that, that's probably one of the things. But also I think funding was one of, one of the things. I think in 2010, 2012, 2014, there was like a lot of AI startups who realized the potential and that now it's possible and it's going to be even more possible in the future. And there are like many great companies got funded in that period. Obviously some of them died, some of them were successful, but I think usually it's a combination of tech, a business use case, and somebody who is willing to fund it. And I think it's the same now in the blockchain space. We have the tech, we have few business use cases, more and more coming and funding is obviously there. That is a really good approach. Definitely a bit more deep than mine. Are you trying to say, sir, that Ilya, the co-founder of Nier, was instrumental 
in the neural network wave. I've heard that his name is on the TensorFlow paper, and it's I don't know, a few papers that are like amongst the most cited in that area of machine learning. I think he did, yeah, pretty, like he, some of his papers are pretty good and people still reference them and some of new stuff happening in the air research references his paper. Congratulations on that. And I think he was one of the people working on it. So obviously he's instrumental, but I think one single person cannot bring a revolution. It has to be many people bringing a revolution. So I think the whole TensorFlow team, the whole PyTorch team, uh, all the researchers who did research before, all the startups who really wanted to build AI models, all these people are equally important. And obviously the capital, the investors who invest in these crazy ideas, very important as well. But yeah, India did pretty good, aw awesome job, I would say, on, on the research and development of Pangorphone. It was manager where it, it just takes a village to raise a child, especially if it's a digital child out there in the neural networks. I guess that was a cheap marketing ploy trying to get a clip out. But I think that there's definitely something to it because people that are in that space, and maybe this applies to you, they are able to recognize who is doing really good work and you're drawn to work with those people. If you want to be in the leading edge of your field, if you want to do meaningful work, if you really want to push boundaries, there's like clusters of people that tend to attract each other. So I'm very interested to see how Ilya now going on to near may be able to send a message to all these people working in AI. It could be in any field, really, that it is maybe Web3 is interesting, something they should consider. Maybe we are recruiting more easily. Amardo, what was your experience coming from Facebook? Like, I, I always wanted to build my own company. I always wanted to work in startups. And that's just something which is inherently in me. Facebook is a very good company, good environment to work, salaries are pretty good. And obviously as the organization grows, there's people who like to work in a big organization. I'm not one of the people who likes to work in a big organization. I'm more of a startup person. From technical perspective, I learned a lot at Facebook. I cannot say I learned a lot. It was a great experience. And if I could change it, I would not change it because it is important to the stuff I currently do and the stuff I did at near, but. This space to me is much more interesting. How do we democratize data? How do we build decentralized systems? How do we build the decentralized computer? And one of the things why I decided to join Near, I really like their vision. I really like the technical strong team. And I think Gilead does really a good job in the Near ecosystem of decentralizing Near itself. So Calimero, Mario and I used to be part of Near Inc. And we spin off into a separate company by Gilead support. And I always said like he was the best boss I ever had. And I strongly agree with this. And like he did this many times, like we, we have Aurora, which is a critical project also happened as a spin-off proximity also happened as a spin-off human guild doing a lot of fantasy gaming stuff. Satori also used to be a spin-off. So like we are seeing more and more companies uh, like Banjan now collective, there's many more. I'm probably going to forget somebody's the wallet team, my near wallet. wallet. It's like Sterling and spin-off happened. Uh, Asprodao is a spin-off from nearing. And the idea is like. Different people have different interests and they see the Web3 decentralization and Near's vision in a different way. And if you put them all in the same organization, you're just going to build a big salty organization which fights over resources and which thinks that different visions don't work together. But if you give them the opportunity to build the companies with their own culture, with their own incentives and ways of thinking, and then building a governing body, which kind of just distributes decision-making to multiple companies and multiple DAOs and multiple entities, this is how you decentralize a protocol, in my opinion.
And also decisions which need to be made on the protocol level, for example, like if you need a feature or need a critical change in the protocol, it should be democratized. Like people, if the majority of the companies and DAOs and members believe that a feature should be implemented, then it should. But if only one party thinks that it should be implemented and it like costs other people, then it shouldn't happen. And I think this way of building this, Ilya used to call it, I don't know what it's called now, but I really like this uh, name, uh, DAO of DAOs. Uh, so like in the future, you will have many DAOs under one umbrella DAO, which is the near ecosystem and decisions just happen, uh, in a more democratic way. I like to say web three is what the internet should be, should have been, but the internet was, and then we yeah, now we're centralized over time. Yeah. yeah, it started like this and then it centralized over time. And I think we, we, we seeing this, if you don't actively work on decentralization, I think it just converges into a centralized entity uh, by nature. hundred percent. I really appreciate the way that you've described it because I feel like there's a challenge. If you come at it with a blank slate and you just have the word decentralization in a banner, it's actually really hard to achieve because to me, there are a few elements that are needed. You need to have strong leadership, vision, people that are capable and committed to doing the work. So if I were to summarize what I think would be the near model, it started with either foundation or Inc, which is modern day Pagoda. And then from the teams that were there, as they gained experience, resources, had ideas, proved themselves, then they spin out to new entities and they have autonomy. But that first link to me is so important. So there needs to be a way of vetting people, training people, establishing the right levels of trust. Because otherwise, it's just a disaster. And I think that it's probably safe to say that we've seen some really good models of decentralization or progressive decentralization in near. And we've probably seen some DAOs that just didn't work out as expected or at all. There were issues with communication, with transparency, with just like allocating workloads and responsibility. So yeah, really interesting to hear how... I guess you fold within this large experiment. Now we're 25 minutes in and I've realized that I have not asked you, <laughs> what is Calimero? How would you describe Calimero to your grandma? To my grandma, impossible. <laughs> to my 16 year old cousin. <laughs> Maybe somebody in the space. Let's try with that first. And then we can unwrap it uh, later on. But essentially what Calimero, like Calimero is a private chart with on top of here. And a private chart is essentially a side chain, which allows you to do execute cross-contract calls, bridge assets between NFTs, fungible tokens between the private chart and a public mainnet. Inside this private chart, you have your own security, your own validators, which run validation on the blocks. And they also produce valid state transition inside the shard. All the transactions are private. So only the entities being part of the shard can see what is going on. That's my level. And then maybe we can unwrap a very specific uh, definition. We can keep going. But yeah, like idea is that you have to find two biggest problems in, in the space now in Web3, which we're trying to solve. One problem is privacy and the other one is scalability and like having gas-free networks, for example, for very specific use cases. Also, we are trying to target Web2 companies and Web3 companies. On the Web2 side, is the question is, how do we bring Web2 companies into the Web3 space? Some of them need regulations, some of them need privacy, some of them need uh, to own their validators, etc. 
On the Web3 side, we are targeting mostly companies who already have a Web3 product, but they're looking either for a privacy solution or for a scaling solution. To give it, to maybe give you a good example, if you're a gaming company and like you want to use a blockchain and have high throughput, usually a blockchain is very decentralized and latency and physics are a thing. So there's a certain amount of time which needs from a signal to travel from Europe to America or from Asia to Europe. And usually these latency are like two, 200 milliseconds. So what you could have regional private charts for gaming companies. For example, you have a Europe chart, you have America East, America West, Asia, Southeast Asia, Middle East, and then users of the game just connect to a private chart for that specific region. Another use case, imagine you want to build a CBDC, a digital currency, more on the government use case. Usually if you deploy current blockchain solutions, they live in a database, like in a data center, they don't leave these premises and like users and the global market cannot really benefit them. With a private chart, you could have a consortium of banks running the private chart, issuing a digital euro, issuing a digital USD, have smart contracts between them, but then bridge these assets to near mainnet. And then if I trust the government of some country and I want to use a digital euro of that country, I should be allowed to. What is trust? That's a good philosophical question. We say decentralization will solve trust problems, but maybe I just trust my government. But maybe somebody else doesn't trust their government. Maybe I trust some company, but I don't trust another company. And just having these options to choose who you trust and who you don't trust and how do you prevent it. Like another thing which I really like to talk about in the blockchain space and federated systems where you don't have that much decentralization, it's accountability. If a company does something malicious, how do we prevent and flag it immediately? So for example, if I put my, my, my funds in a private chart, then the private chart actually gets colluded and they want to do something with my funds. A government entity or the users or the community should be able to detect this without revealing the data. So we are working on a system where you will have external validators which validate encrypted state, and then you will have the private chart which holds the state itself. So if somebody in theory wants to do something malicious, we would have a ways to prove that they did something wrong. And I mean, we have governments, we have institutions, and like that, they're not going to disappear. Police will always need to be there. If we don't have police, anarchy will go. Anarchy will happen immediately. If we don't have legal system, anarchy will ha happen immediately again. And if anyone is in doubt, they're like, oh, I wouldn't do anything illegal if there was no police. Trust me, I would. <laughs> there is no shortage of people that would go crazy. Like this game theory is very easy to play out. If the incentives are there and there's no deterrence, people just go bananas. You need, the question is, how do we reduce corruption, for example? How do we use Web3 to reduce corruption? How do we use Web3 to bring transparency and systems which need transparency? How do we build trust? more trust in some comp some consortiums, etc. How do we bring more data trust? I would call it data trust, like how the user can know that their data is not being used maliciously and things. I think these problems can be solved by technology. Obviously, you still need humans and bodies to, to enforce some certain things. Let me see if I'm getting this right, because I feel like we're connecting at a pretty high level here. I first caught it towards the beginning of the episode where you said something that I thought was really fascinating. And it was the need to have privacy to actually be able to comply regulation. So there's a bunch of countries that have private preserving regulation already. And some blockchain may actually be breach of that. The right to be forgotten in Europe is one thing that comes to mind or GDPR. And then you mentioned again in the context of the Web2 people and the use cases for them. And when you look at privacy, not only would they need a privacy compliance solution, to be able to be within the current regulatory frameworks, but also to be able to 
operate the current business models. If you talk to any business out there, there is a trove of information that is private to the business that they do not disclose to the competition. They do not disclose to users. They do not disclose just in general. Like it's just not good practice to have everything out there in the open. So these two to me make me think, why are there politicians out there hell-bent on trying to make privacy look like an evil thing? trying to make privacy look like the thing that is there for wrongdoing, when at the moment privacy is the default? The question is, yes, I understand your question. There, there's, for example, like Zcash, Monero, and like the Tornado Cash situation, which is pretty unfortunate. And I don't think developers should ever end up in prison for building a decentralized protocol, which preserves privacy. I agree. Yes. It's very sad. It's very sad. It's very sad. But. Like the, the thing is from the government perspective, sometimes like I understand that I, I like to look for, from both sides, us from the web three side, looking for privacy and everything, but also then from the government perspective, a lot of these protocols with great technology comes great responsibility. So if you build a solution like this, it can be used for very bad things. And the question is like, how do you prevent money laundering? How do you prevent criminals using these protocols? How do you prevent things which shouldn't live on the blockchain as well? There's, for example, like Facebook does a lot of censoring and censoring is obviously not great because like I, some of my very podcasts and influencers who I like to watch got censored and I was not very happy about it. But then in my opinion, personally, there is things which should be censored. Like I don't want my child to watch things which shouldn't be there. Or there's, there is things which are like, I think the whole world will, majority of the world will agree that, that they shouldn't be uh, available uh, to the public. And, and somebody has to take this responsibility of making sure that some regulations happen. The question is like, how do we make these regulations work for Web3? And how do we make these regulations uh, work for the government as well? And when Tornado Cash or these protocols will build in, they will build in a way that privacy first and whoever wants to use it can use them. But I think now we have to think also like, how do we make them compliant? Like, how do we preserve that bad actors don't use this, these things? And, and it is a big responsibility. Right? I agree. I think that with great technology comes great responsibility. That is a hundred percent going to be the title for the podcast. Love a good Spider-Man reference there, but it's true. My question was perhaps a bit more cynical in the sense that why would you target the technology layer? When you have other points of contact where you could easily target the same illegal activity. Like for instance, if you use Tornado Cash, you must have stolen the money from somewhere. So you see the money coming in. And then if you have a hundred million dollars, how the fuck are you going to deploy a hundred million dollars without people noticing? So the fact that you've laundered the money in the middle doesn't really remove the ability for you to catch people on any end. I could launder any amount of money in Tornado Cash. I'm not going to be able to buy a $7 million house in Australia because on that end, they still ask questions. Like we've put different checks and balances along the way that when you look at the amount of money that crypto actually handles and the very thin layers of privacy that they're attacking, it would almost seem like they're trying to crack down on a different type of agenda. I agree. I agree also. I think that like education is important. We, we have experts in, in, for example, AI, there's a big debate of 
will a sentient AI become evil and kill us all? And these are like very philosophical questions. And there's people who work on the AI systems every day. And I think we should ask the AI people. But if you had to guess, if you had to guess, <laughs> what would you say? Oh man, I don't want to be killed by Terminator. I would like to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger though. <laughs> but not be killed by Terminator. I watched The Matrix recently again, it being a very long time. I was a little kid. And it struck me just how early we were in the technology days. Like you tell like these big ass cube computers and some of the technology looks silly, but the whole philosophy behind it, holy shit. Like these people are time travelers. Like they, they talk about it to such a level of, like intensity. I was like a bit afraid walking out. There's a scene where Neo makes it to the white room in the matrix. And the machine tells him like, yeah, you are number 475, whatever. Every single time the human makes it here, every single time they make the same mistake, your emotions are going to fuck you up. And we computers have no emotions. So we know exactly how to manipulate you. And I was like, ah, <laughs> we're done. This is the end of it. <laughs> Will a sentient AI have emotions? That's also a good question. Either you have emotions or you're smart, because if it's smart, it would remove emotions. Can you imagine your computer running off for a weekend with a lover and then losing their password because <laughs> they got drunk on a date? I don't know. I, I feel like a system should remove these things. I, oh, that's a very philosophical question again. I don't know. I, if I could remove my emotions, I would not do that. Even if I was, well, maybe if you're that, that smart, then you realize that you're better off. I want my romantic escapades on a Caribbean island. I do not want my bank to do that. You know what I'm saying? It's hard. I get it. I get it. But yeah. Yeah. But anyway, back to privacy. I guess what I was trying to say, I'm trying to build up to the point that if you have a private shard in Calimero and it has its structure of private encrypted validators. And then internal validators, wouldn't that technically enable you to have the best of both worlds as far as having a private shard where normal business transactions can occur? And let's use a case of a CBTC. A government wants to distribute billions of dollars worth of aid, could be natural disaster relief, could be for whatever reason. They can do so privately, but this would also then create an ability to trace back things or monitor things in a way where it actually brings more accountability and transparency. Like, how do you strike that balance or how do you see the possibility there to strike that balance? How do we remove corruption? Yeah. How do we remove corruption? By implementing more technology, that, that's, I think, the way to go, first of all. But I think that, yes, like private charge is essentially like a true 2.5 product. So it really brings the best of the two, the two worlds. So assets can live. Usually you want your high worth assets to live on the public chain as long as they're not private. For example, like I hold in some wallet, some amount of dollars, thousand dollars, but then I want to trade and do buy some stuff. I don't want to maybe show every single person the exact things I'm buying because then it's a worse system than web two, because be before I was just giving my data to Amazon. Now, when I buy on a public chain, I just giving data to every single person who takes the chain. So what you usually want, okay, I want to have some amount of money, bridge them to a private chart, execute my transactions. The entity obviously has accounting of what I did. And then I offer them the results into the main chain, or I just spend my tokens and they offer them, they prove that 
I spend the tokens. But then nobody can know what I actually bought. I give this information to the entity. The entity either way needs to have this information because when you show revenue and you have to go pay taxes, at any point, somebody can come and tell me, okay, where is the revenue coming from? What is the goods you sold? What's the profit you made on them, etc. So you still need to have this trace of data. The just question is, who do you share it with? Do you share it selectively with for only certain use cases with certain people? Or do you share it with the whole world? Or do you just give away your data and you don't have any ownership over it at all? So the, 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 that's the question. Which is, by the way, a brilliant example of a legitimate use of Tornado Cash. Like I've heard of many VCs, angel investors, people that deployed money as a profession that because of their influence and reach on social media and people tracking their wallets, they would deploy funds to Tornado Cash to avoid basically influencing the market one way or another. And this may be a very specific case of high net worth individuals. Maybe that's the only thing that Ethereum is good for, high value, low frequency transactions. But you can see that applying to anything. Can you imagine a world where your employer is tracking what you buy online and if you start buying medicines, they, whatever, they fire you because they don't want to pay for your insurance? Like, it really gets very disturbing very quickly and definitely worse than Web2. Exactly. But the question is, somebody has to hold the records of what's happened at some point for accountability. And like, I think there's a fine balance to be struck in the five to 10 years on these protocols because... It's very hard to differentiate a bad actor from a normal actor. And then the easiest solution is just build the protocol or build the product offering the services instead of going for the hard solution by pinning down who are the bad actors. That's just life and governments, they want to get the solution done and it makes sense. And on us in the industry is, is really to work hard and figure, I mean, we have to educate the governments. There's going to be, you know, younger people coming in the governments. There's going to be more education. There's going to be on our side ways to figure out how do we build systems, which are more compatible with the world itself. I used to be, I am still a crypto anarchist. I really believe that technology can solve problems of the world and privacy is important and that there has to be limitations, but. There is also the world that we live in, maybe in 100 years, maybe in 200 years, maybe, I don't know. But at this moment in time, if you want to make blockchain and crypto work, one step at a time, let's figure out current problems and problems for the next three years. I used to think that some of the more egregious examples are needing privacy preserving solutions and blockchain as permanent records of transactions, etc., were just from Venezuela. But the longer I've lived in the West, and the more that I see the American government recently, I realize that the need is actually human. It's worldwide. Back in Venezuela, there was a minister. He changed roles. I think he went from like the Ministry of Infrastructure to some other minister. And as he was leaving, literally the tower where all the records were kept of all the contracts that were signed, mysteriously burned, like the, the entire tower. <laughs> and it even remained burned for a long time, almost as a statement to the city, that's just how much power I have. And there is no record of all the shit that was done through that ministry that being infrastructure would have been billions upon billions. And then there's a second example. When I went to study overseas, I had access to foreign currency. We had foreign currency controls, but you could get some money as an international student. That database was also wiped. <laughs> Mysteriously, it just disappeared. There is no record of who got 
how much money. And for years, there was the most egregious corruption there. And that's what gets me thinking that with privacy and transparency, you may be solving a problem for a user, but you have to define who your user is. Because a lot of the problems that we have now with corruption, it's not like people are incompetent and something doesn't work and technology fixes that problem. We have to understand that a lot of people are deliberately corrupt. Like things may be broken for a reason because it is working for some people. I agree. And I'm coming from Croatia and I believe that Croatia had big corruption cases. We had our prime minister put in prison. I think now with going into European Union, many things are changing and slow, but like we still have corruption at many layers of government and politics. And it's very hard to remove this, but we can make it better. And Vitalik usually says there's a really good book, like Skin in the Game by Nassif Taleb. And I really think to prevent corruption, like you have to make the incentives not worth being corruptible. It's like the same in proof of stake systems. Like if you try to do something malicious or the, your stake gets slashed and just the incentive of trying to be corrupted is not worth it because it's stake is a big like at risk. And I think it's the same governments and making governments more transparent. For example, like if you have government funding, uh, how do you make sure that tenders get written in the right way? How do you make sure that you have a governance forum of independent parties who write this tender, who vote on this tender, that you make sure that there's like layers of prevention, but then also some stake at the game. Like in Croatia was problem, like you do something wrong as a politician and you like, often you don't end up in prison or you have a cousin or things like this. And I think it can be solvable. There's more corrupt countries and there are less corrupt countries. And usually if you look at the less corrupt countries, they're doing some things better. Maybe you don't agree with every single thing or you think there could be improvements, but. It definitely comes out to education. And a lot of us learned the hard way, the free education of life. Fun fact, Melbourne has a lot of creations. They go absolutely batshit crazy during the Australian Open. And an interesting thing was that during the lockdowns, like almost after two years, very heavy lockdowns, insane restrictions, there were protests every weekend, every second weekend, it was like bigger and bigger, 500,000, 700,000. And there were a shit ton of flags, Croatia, Moldova, Eastern Europe. People that were like, nah, fuck this shit. We've listened to this once. We see where this goes. The English may be more subtle, more refined. They inserted slowly, but it got to the point where it was really no different from some of the historic oppression. And people were like, how do we get out of this? This is really not good. But I'm optimistic. I'm a very optimistic. Me too. Me too. Where five years ago, it's much better now. Where we used to be 10 years ago is much better now. 20 years, 50 years ago, I grew, like my parents grew up in, in Yugoslavia, which was essentially a dictatorship. And then obviously the war happened, unfortunately, similar to like how it's happening right now. And the question is, how do we prevent things like this happening? How do we prevent dictators? How do we prevent corruption? How do we all live in a peaceful environment? Now with a lot of Russians fleeing from Russia because they don't want the war. They don't want to fight in this war. They have a lot of family in Ukraine. Just because of one crazy guy, the whole world goes in a, in a terrible state. And I hope year by year, one solution at a time, better governance systems, we can build fair global world where everybody can just work, live and have the best opportunities and incentives. Obviously not everybody's going to have the same opportunities and incentives, 
but that's like what we should strive for. If you're smart enough, if you want to work hard, if you're the best sportsman, you should have the right opportunity to show yourself. And like, that's what Web3 shown. Usually startups were happening only in, in San Francisco and every single engineer kid, including me, wanted to move to San Francisco and work for Google and Facebook because that was the only place where things were happening. Then slowly New York and London became hubs. And then in, in Asia, we had Singapore, some other ones in Europe, but not as good as Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was always Silicon Valley. But now with Web3, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't make where you work. It doesn't like your salary is not dependent on, on uh, obviously there's stages of company, but, and maybe where you live and maybe some taxes and stuff. Uh, but we're really getting into this global market. If, if you're the best talent in Silicon Valley and you back you move back to your home country and you can charge this and work in this global economy and people are going to pay for it, not just because you're in San Francisco, because they know you're good. And it's the same with developers. Now people from Nigeria deploying amazing smart contracts, they don't need to have servers. They don't need to pay clouds or anything. They just deploy a contract. If it's good experience, they have the opportunity to make a lot of money and make these hubs around the world. And it's the same, like if you look at now what near is doing. The near hub incentive, it's amazing. Now we have like, near Ukraine, we have near Balkans, we have near Kenya. I think we're going to have near Nigeria, near North America and like some other ones. So I don't forget again, there's many more, more coming. But essentially, like we are building these local hubs around the world, like where people have the opportunities to, to participate in this global market, not only just be part of the community, but actually participate in this global market to get grants, no matter where you are, to get funding, no matter where you are. And I think that's very important. Obviously, like if you go for an IPO, probably want to do an IPO on NASDAQ right now, but if you want to launch a token, depends, depends what type of business you are again. But if you want to launch a token and the token makes sense, you can launch the token from, from not anywhere in the world, but like more and more places. And eventually just gonna, I think eventually just gonna become, why couldn't the stock exchange be on chain one day? And you just have derivatives of stocks and a truly global market, free market for everybody. I think it's a nice way to close the loop. Just to go back a couple of things, what you said in 2018, I had the opportunity to go all through the east of Europe, flew into Vienna and then. Bratislava, Budapest, up through Poland, Baltic States, and Petersburg. And especially in Russia, it was very reassuring to confirm what I already knew, which is that people are not the government. And in more places than not, you actually find that the people are at odds with the government. So I guess that goes to show how crypto needs to be a grassroots movement. We need to have enough people on the ground that understand the value proposition, that understand how it can improve their lives. Especially if it's a situation of us versus them with their government, if crypto can improve their economy, if it can reduce corruption, et cetera. And then hopefully, assuming that there is democracy, people can then start to vote in more crypto-friendly politicians and the whole world moves forward with technology. If that is true, then it is not a coincidence that you have the current politicians going against crypto because, yeah, there may be a tension there. People yeah. are the government. Do we agree on that? And slowly, we probably going to converge to something much better. <laughs> yeah. Well, technology has the potential to enable that. At the moment, like money is the government. People vote with their money. Worst case scenario, they get out and you're left with a shell of a country and a collapsing economy. Best governments attract talent in the economy grows. It's very hard to track a lot of these variables. And it's obviously very limiting to where you're based geographically. So I think that's partially the promise of Web3 to be able to create 
those environments where everyone can contribute and capture the value without the geographical constraint? Uh, very much agree. Very much agree. And like on your previous point, like my father used to say, people are people and it doesn't matter where you're coming from, who do you vote for or what do you do? If you're a good person, you're a good person. And like that in the end matters based on the Russian-Ukrainian war. Uh, so there's good people everywhere and there's bad people everywhere. And you just, that's how the world works. A hundred percent. That's just how it is. And I, I think it's hoping days and this right. And I really work hard to move corrupt and government following these things. We can do it. And I think it's slowly happening. Like I think every five years it's getting better. We just don't like to acknowledge that it's happening. And I think our gen the next generation and the next generation after that, if we don't kill ourselves with nukes, I think they're going to live in a much, much better world. Due to technology, it reminds me, you know, I get out of Venezuela, I arrive in Australia, and I didn't understand why people complained so much. No one was ever happy. They was always complaining about something. And I was like, why do you complain so much? Things are perfect here. This is honestly paradise. And after 14 years in Australia, I can tell you, the only way that things get better and the only way that you get to keep what you have is by being extremely critical. Unless you are an absolute annoying asshole about everything, you must have high standards. You must maintain high standards. You must question what high standards are and keep pushing for excellence. It doesn't help. And I can tell you the 14 years that have been there, I feel like it's declining. Maybe somebody arriving today may still think it's paradise. It's a pretty good place, not gonna lie. But you can see how people get comfortable. They get lazy. They stop challenging their assumptions. And in a world that is changing rapidly with technology, that's not good enough. So I guess that maybe in crypto now, it is getting better. And if you're already within the very active set of developers pushing the boundary, you're fine. From my point of view, I guess that while acknowledging that it is getting better, I'm on that mission to just constantly ask, what can we do better? User experience is massive for me. I guess that's why I'm on the near ecosystem and really pushing for that. And I guess just education in general, like how can we get more people to find out what we're doing, why we're doing it, how would it impact them? How can they get involved? So I guess that's why we have this podcast. I agree. That's, that's a very good point. And yeah, user experience is the most important thing. And like on the education part, I think newer generations will get this stuff much better. If you think when I started using Facebook, I got it immediately. But then when my mother moved to Facebook, I left it. And now it's with some other platforms. I think, I think like when, when the next generation comes to these protocols, probably uh, if I, when they come, they're going to leave. And I think it's just going to be a cycle of reiteration and innovation. That's just how things are. A hundred percent. And by the way, I also left Facebook <laughs> when the boomers joined, but it goes beyond technology because what I really like. Even though NFTs may have financially bankrupted a generation, some made money. I love that it actually taught them not just the technology, but it also taught them about like economics. Like now they understand the supply of the NFT and the inflation and the marketplaces. And there's just so many concepts that I think in Web2, we don't really get a chance to be as exposed to. Like, you know, have companies curating that experience and I think our generation was, you know, now Robin Hood with all the Reddit stuff. And like, I think our generation was much more, my parents were not so much into like stock, like they did some stock investing, but through a banker and everything. 
But eventually when I started, like I had more interest. So like, how do we build a business? How, how do I invest in, in things? And now these new generations are like, okay, how do we do yield farm? How do we do this? And I think it's just, like, we just, I've I watched two good documentaries. One is Triumph of the Nerds. And the other one is, I don't remember what the name was, but it was about founding of Sequoia and like some of the, like how venture capital started in Silicon Valley. These were two documentaries, which I really like. A Triumph of the Nerds is about like Intel and Microsoft and Apple and how they started. And the previous one is about like how venture capital got, became the thing. And it's very funny. You see these people in both documentaries, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, some of the venture capitalists there. The, the trend is always the same. Like I look at this documentary and it, like it, it, to me, it feels like right now. There's some enthusiasts building some technology, believing in something which nobody else believes. And then eventually it starts kicking off. Money pours in, gets mass adoption, and then the next cycle happens. And, and it just, we had Intel, we had IBM, we had Microsoft, we had Apple, we had Google, we had Facebook, we had Snapchat. Now we have Web3. Next thing probably is going to be, uh, once we have this decentralized computer, it's going to be Neuralink and how do you interact from your brain with this decentralized network. And then after that, it's going to be like in the metaverse and then plugging in something into your brain. And it's going to be in, in 10 or 15 year cycles, there's just going to be always some innovation, which small amount of enthusiasts get happy about, and then some early adopters start working on it and then just flows into the next technological revolution. There are small amount of enthusiasts in every area, home brewing and fishing. So I guess the technology, it's definitely a different category. And I'd say that within technology, there's probably two things that are required. And I don't know if you have any lessons from having seen the documentaries, I'll make sure I link them on the show notes. The first one would be you need to be solving a problem. There needs to be something that is a, an improvement. And the second one is you need to have conviction and vision because clearly the problem that you're trying to solve, the benefits may not be immediate or you need the market to provide all the things for the thesis to be complete. I'll give you an example. I remember when Microsoft had the vision to have one desktop on every desk, like one computer on every desk. Some people thought it was insane because there was nothing to do on computers. People were like, why would a person ever need a computer at home? There was literally nothing else to do. So I guess that the vision of, okay, once we have computers that will enable anyone to code and what they can code, the world is open to them. Maybe it would have been the same with an iPhone and the app store. Once you have access to basically anything on a really high power device, what apps people make is really up for grabs. So I guess that. I'm wondering if we could find that framework or maybe find our place in the timeline for Web3. I'm guessing that we're building the core even for now. What is that sort of vision or belief? Like at what point do people come in and the market starts responding to, to feed the cycle of growth? I think first thing which we're trying to do at Near and like we generally should do is easier user onboarding, which means user doesn't need to have a wallet. Just to start using a blockchain product, user doesn't need to buy a token to start using the product. And then eventually once they realize that their NFT or whatever they have holding in this free blockchain or whatever, or paid by the developer, uh, then they can decide, yes, I want to create the wallet now. I want to become owner of this thing. 
So like just like easier user onboarding, uh, I think it's one, one of the key things. Like it's very similar. I like to always say Facebook, when Facebook was starting, they had data center, like they, they would put racks into the data center. They had a small apartment and they would buy the servers and they would host the infrastructure and the users would use the, use the service for free. And now in blockchain, we expect the users to pay for their infrastructure. And in my opinion, the developers should be responsible for paying the infrastructure in many use cases if they want to get the mass adoption. If Facebook came and say our server host is $10,000 and we have 10,000 users and every single user which come pay us a dollar, we would not be using Facebook today. The, in the blockchain is the same. If you don't figure out how to onboard users for free or incurs the cost, and then find revenue models to upsell things and to find ways to monetize, you will not succeed. That's like one-to-one -one my, my kind of view on the thing. The other thing which I really think uh, even investors and projects and everybody in the space, and it's in general, it's been like when everybody jumps on something, I think it's already too late. Once you see something in the news, probably you missed the train in, in most of the cases. I think that's what, what happened in the NFT. Like it depends on the case. I really like to see what do we do not for right now, but what do we build long-term and sustainably and how do we build a business? Like in the Web3 space, revenue never comes up. It's very sad. Like these companies are businesses. And if you want to sustain a good service for the products and provide certain SLAs and whatever to have the product rate, you have to generate some money. And unfortunately, nobody really thinks about it. And like we see thousands and thousands of marketplaces, some of them are pretty good. Most of them died or are dying right now. And the question is what separates these good marketplaces from the bad ones? Like I really I dislike the JPEG revolution, but I like board apes, for example, because I got the idea of like, oh, they have an IP bound to the NFT. So if I actually buy this NFT, there's a legal structure for me to actually sue somebody if they use my NFT or prevent somebody from using the, this NFT on their logos, on their t-shirts or whatever. So it, it made sense. And also they build this exclusive club. So for me, it was like, oh, this is actually the first JPEG I, I get. But just for JPEG, for the sake of JPEG, doesn't make sense. And like they obviously found a way to monetize. Their users find a way to monetize the apes. They found a way to monetize the product. And I think it's amazing. And that's what I'm looking for in the near future. That is an amazing point. Just with the news thing, I guess it really depends what sort of outcome you're looking for. For instance, if you see something on the news, you probably missed a 100x or maybe like a 20x, maybe a 10x. But some people are happy with a 2x or a 3x or a 5x, but like multiples of return. If you are a developer or a builder, you're probably not getting your information from the news. So it's just fascinating to me how... Oh, as a developer. Yeah, yeah. As an innovator. Because I was going to say, it's just fascinating to me how the information spreads. So then you have to make the assessment, not only is it on the news, but is the information on the news correct? Because it's very frustrating. Even to this day, a lot of the information being put out about the blockchain, it's either outright incorrect or maybe very superficial. And I think that in that sense, we have probably not really started scratching the surface of what Nier can do. And if we use user experience as an example. Just rephrase my stuff. Nier was also not the first layer one and they didn't succeed because they were the first. I think, yeah, I just to, to point that out. Nier was not obviously the first blockchain, but they're quite successful. 
not to be the first in the market, but like first to bring innovation. If you stack yourself like this is the box and this is how I think and this is how blockchain should work, it's not going to work out. Like you have to think like what are the things, like what are the problems? What are the things up? up? Calinero, privacy. You know, I guess I'll have it as a two-part sim. And the first one is I'll use this example of a UX that Nier can't afford and how we're not really scratching the service yet. And then maybe you can elaborate more on the relationship between Calimero and Nier. My assumption here was Calimero would basically extend the same level of user experience. So any examples that we can give on the Nier side today would also apply to Calimero in the very near future. What I was mentioning was that the team is coming over from Solana to have a game in Solana called Soul Crash. And it's actually quite popular in Solana. Like a ton of people playing it, a ton of money. But when you put the game side by side, you realize that it is literally the same game. There isn't anything on the near crash side that really leverages the near user experience. And I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential there in the sense that just deploying the same game engine doesn't really address the onboarding. So things like if I send a link to a friend that it's not from Web3, can they get a wallet? You mentioned something brilliant, which is who pays for the fees? No one should have to pay for the fees up front. As you were saying it, I was thinking, could there be a model whereby the NIR Foundation gives basically every project some NIR, but the NIR is on a segregated fold that only goes to paying fees. And if the project doesn't succeed and the fees, I guess, are never spent, then the money returns after whatever, one year, five years, you name it. That framing was thinking of a VC equivalent. We had all these early stage tech companies being fueled by VC money. So I'm like, fuck it. There is near going around. Might as well just burn it on boring people, but make sure that it's going to the right thing, not paying for some fancy office in San Francisco. That's a pretty cool idea that you could have a wall where people can put money for paying community gas fees or something. It's a cool idea. I should never thought of it. Let's do it. You call your people, I'll call my people. And <laughs> cool. like, probably could be possibly implemented. That's a pretty cool idea. That's a pretty good idea. If you just yeah, have a community wall. Like that, 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 I like it. I like it. Not a bad idea, to be honest. You heard it here first, people? Yes. We're going to stamp it now. Goes into the history of Web3. If it succeeds, you can say, hopefully, that you're the first one who came up with it. And if it fails, I'll have to go back in time and edit this out. <laughs> or just edit it out immediately and then post it afterwards. That's also... I know people that do that on YouTube just to claim some wins and predictions. They record both versions and then they just shape shift into what actually happened. That's Sandy. Just before we move on to the section where we make that linking between Calimero and Nier, the relationship, everything from user experience to whatever, token use, etc. For most people listening to this, it'd be the first interaction with Calimero. I know that we're one month away from mainnet, so hopefully it won't be the last or it will be the first of many more. And most people listening to these are within the near ecosystem. So I was wondering if you could help us understand a bit better the relationship between Calimero and Near, how one may complement the other. What can we expect in terms of growth? If I'm thinking of developing a project, which one should I be looking at, perhaps? Yeah, obviously the relationship is deep. We used to be part of Near and we spin off out of Near and Near Foundation has invested in Calimero. So we are tightly aligned with the vision of Near. Also, we are tightly aligned with the vision of Aurora. Uh, Alex Shevchenko is an angel investor and we believe that the collaboration between Ethereum, uh, Near and Aurora 
and bringing private shards, shards to both uh, near ecosystem users and Aurora ecosystem users and eventually Ethereum ecosystem users makes uh, a lot of sense. And the benefit is that all the contracts, all the tooling, uh, everything works inside the near Calimero ecosystem as well. So if you have already a contract on near and you realize that there's some extensions or like some contracts could be redeployed on Calimero, you can easily do it. Also like near API JS works uh, with Aurora integration, Solidity, all the tooling should be pretty much the same and it's got JavaScript. The JavaScript is coming. Uh, apparently we have uh, a prototype of JavaScript working. We want to, we have this solution called the console and the console is essentially AWS for private charts. So instead of you re-implementing and managing infrastructure and operations, you can just use our console and we are working on integrating this in, like the JavaScript VM inside the private chart on a one-click install and then you could be able to just use JavaScript as well. And I think that's one of the parts of getting to mass adoptions. JavaScript developers, many of them in the world and people usually don't like to learn new languages and new paradigms and there's people who are enthusiastic about learning languages, but it's just easier if you already have the tools and, and you want to tap into machine very easily. You can just do it by, oh, I know JavaScript. I am a developer. I want to try Web3 and do it very simply. So I think that's one of the key things to keep in mind when thinking about Nier is really thinking how to bring the masses and developers and users. It's funny because you say it from the perspective of a founder, I think. I see it more from the perspective of an employee. I'll say, I'm the founder. I've got a profile of the classic Web3 person. Love learning a new language. I call it engineering Olympics. Some people are fixated in these problems that are more technical, or that they may not really move the needle in terms of adoption. But if you put on the hat of a founder that is actually running, say, a real business, or you have real desire for growth, then you need to hire people. And that's when you realize that having a pool of 20 million JavaScript developers that, you know, they just want to come in and do the work. They just want to be able to deploy on the environment. They don't really care that much, perhaps. They're not married to a blockchain. That's where I think it really makes a difference, especially when you think about what are the barriers for having a successful project? You mentioned funding. We're going through a bear market. The global economy is imploding. The winners are going to be the people who are able to develop, especially through these times in the most resourceful way possible. And to me, that involves expanding your developer database, data, data, data set, from whatever Solidity developers are now, which are extremely expensive and in high demand, unless they enjoy the product, they won't do it, to JavaScript, which is a much wider set of people around the world. Hopefully more competitive pricing. I'm not sure on that front. I agree, I agree. Like to get to faster iteration, you have to have faster onboarding. And if onboarding takes three to six months and you reduce it to a week or a day, we're going to have more projects building and more developers building and organizations will pick up velocity. Do you think, or in what instances would it make sense for an application that is currently on Neo Native or Aurora to also deploy an instance on Calimero? And would the two applications talk to each other? I don't know. Maybe we think of the case of Metapool. We have an application on Aurora, so users could stake directly on Aurora. They don't have to use the bridge. They don't have to get away from the MetaMask environment. We also, obviously, we're near native. Would it make sense for us to be on Calimero as well? I guess enable some people to maybe stake large amounts without leaving 
a public record? For the Metapool example, I think eventually if we have private charts, which provide like tokens with some incentive values and we have some kind of thinking implemented inside the private chart, I think that could be possible. But on, on the part with why would anybody move their contract to a private chart. Imagine this, like you are a DAO and like you already built an accounting. There's, for example, an accounting contract or a department contract or a treasury contract or a voting contract on mainnet. You can just use that same contract and deploy it on a private chart to have private voting run by the DAO. So you move the code, which already exists for a certain functionality and you make it private. Or you just extend your capabilities. For example, SPIN is a decentralized order book, which is built on NIR. It runs on NIR. If, for example, if they want to go into the enterprise sector and provide an enterprise service for liquidity providers or traders to have independent networks where they can do OTC trades or trades, they can just take the same contract, deploy it, and provide a customizable experience for a different set of customers with different requirements. Also, if you need to customize your private chart to have a different block times or a different gas limits or a faster execution, slower execution, execution, uh, different contract limits. Uh, for example, current contract limit on, on NIR is 4 megabytes. Now we have one chart with 32 megabytes because one of the customers cares about having everything inside the same contract to have faster execution in, inside of uh, the same block. So we can facilitate that as well. So there's also like the customizability part. But yeah, it really depends. Like I, I believe that some applications can fully live inside the private charts. Some of them can be hybrid. Some just features can be deployed. But some of them just lives on near mainnet. It really depends on the use case. And even if you think about like the database business, MongoDB, Postgres, uh, different types of databases, like you, you usually use a toolkit of things for different problems. And usually you have a layered infrastructure for different sets of requirements. Our piece of the infrastructure is really privacy, scalability, and customization. I really like the customization part. I'm not super technical and I know just enough to defend myself with Python, but I've, I've logged into an AWS console before, and it is actually amazing. If you're a modern day builder, the menu of options that you can have on AWS, there's a range of services from memory, you name it. And then within each one of those services is a bunch of customizations to the extent that even though all you have to do is click seven times so you can spin up a node, we have like guides on all the different specifications and considerations. Like it's a very rich environment that can be very tailored to the use case. So I'm wondering if you give us a bit more insight on how that customization or the console is going to look like. Exactly. The console essentially entails like several things. It entails management of the private chart. You can spin up a private chart on a Kubernetes cluster, connect it to any cloud. And in the future, deploy it on-premises as well. So like one-click deployment, you specify how many nodes, what parameters you actually care about. And then inside you get a custom explorer, you get a marketplace where you can just plug and play different applications. So for example, you need the streaming payments. Um, you just install the Rocketo contract, you connect your API key to Rocketo, and then you can use Rocketo on top of uh, private sharding. You have your near wallet, you just authorize with a private chart through the near wallet, you connect. Uh, you need, uh, for example, a payment solution for contract. You can use GeekPay because if you want to use GeekPay, you can just install it. You want to have AstroDAO and start a private chart, you can just click a button on AstroDAO and start a private chart. So it just gives you this API and this infrastructure for managing and customizing your shard to your use case. 
And then on top of that, like we have some use cases where more spaces inside the private chart where you can have different entities, a consortium network, or DAO members, which can run a set of validators inside the private chart. They have their own kind of view of what's going on. You have a private explorer, which is also permission. You have the bridge. So all the bridge functionality is also in the console. So you can one click deploy the bridge, deploy NFT connectors, fungible token connectors, cross shard contract calls. You can register certain fungible tokens if they're missing. If also Aurora integration, JavaScript integration, like essentially the console should be one unified place, one unified frontend where the developers, companies, DAOs, or whoever can effectively build easily and manage easily their infrastructure without worrying about all, all these things, monitoring all, all the stuff is out of the box. But that sounds pretty good. I'm not going to lie. At the moment, this is all available if you book a private demo. Calimero, I don't think the console has been made public yet or shared publicly. This has been recorded on October the 4th. Yes. So currently we have like around nine projects, 10 projects building on top actively. So if somebody needs access, we usually create a Slack channel with them. We give them access and then we have a weekly call with them to provide them support, to figure out what they're building, how they're building it. If there's any issues, they can report it, bugs, any features. So like we really invest uh, a lot of time in customer developer uh, experience. So like that people who are currently using Kalin Mero uh, can they get the best out of it. And we plan to launch mainnet and the console together. Uh, currently uh, infrastructure, we, we provide the service currently free uh, to the users. We haven't implemented a pricing model and billing yet. Uh, so that's why we cannot run the infrastructure for every single project because it will be pretty expensive. So we really pick projects, which we believe will be at the moment it's just Alex Shevchenko money pack for all of this. Actually, we got credits from some cloud providers. Oh, it's, we use the credits here. So no investor money has depend on infrastructure yet. Okay. There you go. It's good. We clear that one out. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's super interesting. So with the nine projects and I guess with the selection process, I'm really intrigued on how do projects find Calimero or how does Calimero go out there finding projects? I am technically a business developer, so I'm just trying to see that deal flow. And I guess a, a separate but related question would be, are there any other sort of chains out there that would be comparable if somebody was looking at having a private instance, maybe like a Cosmos or a Polkadot, like where should people think of these new Calimero private shards in the broader context of Web3? I think the biggest uh, like competitors, let's say, would be like Polygon Edge and Avalanche Subnet. I think they are trying to build a similar product to us. I think these two would be like very similar. There is obviously the differences and requirements and why we think that local is the way to go. If you're really looking for a scalability and privacy solution and more an enterprise solution, but yeah, not to go into debates. And like usually how we get leads, usually we get leads through either people, for example, applying for a grant at Near Foundation. They say, oh, these are requirements. We look, they're looking for a privacy solution. They get funneled to us. Uh, a lot of projects, for example, from like Human Guild and ecosystem projects, or like they hear on the podcast, for example, or they see us at Nirpon uh, at conferences and uh, maybe on Twitter, they, they found us or like they saw Ilya's presentation or some conferences and they reach out to us. So usually it's very organic at the moment. Just have our Twitter where we like kind of post ideas and technical things of what Calimero can do and high level things. And like we didn't invest much in marketing, we just organically are growing. 
developers who have the problems find to us to organic channels and they come to us. But it's been pretty good. We cannot complain on the inquiries we are getting daily, but like we just have to first really find a sustainable model to grow it. And currently like we are still alpha stage. So we need to push in the next. I think finding a sustainable model is a number one priority because once we're raking in the cash, we need to find a referral fee and see how many projects we bring in from this podcast. <laughs> I need to find some money as well. We're going to do Calimero slash podcast lead slash AVB. That's it. That's it. That's really interesting. So I'm guessing that at the moment, these are all qualified leads that move on to mainnet. Do you foresee the role of marketing changing or the way in which projects can choose to build in Calimero to change once mainnet and the console are open? Could anyone technically deploy with one click without ever speaking to the Calimero team? And if so, I'm guessing that we could go from nine projects now to any number really within a short time frame. How do you foresee that over the next few months? That's the goal. That's what we're trying to look for. So essentially the goal is now to wrap up mainnet, wrap up the console, fix like the last bugs, get a feature requests from the current partners we have, launch and invest in documentation and building out some customer support kind of thing where like people can easily report if something is wrong or they have a question, they can connect with us on Slack. Now we very much invest time in the companies building on us because we really want to understand their use cases. We really want to understand their pains and we really want to understand what features they need at this moment. Eventually, as you grow, you have to scale this process. But the goal is to get to a very self-sustained service. If you go to AWS, you don't talk to support every day. They have pretty good decent communication. They have documentation. They have tutorials, guides, YouTube videos, whatever. That's what we would like to do. Obviously, there's going to be always support. If you have a very specific requirement or you're a big enterprise and you need more, more, more different ta tailored things. That makes total sense. I'm thinking and really hoping that depending on the profile of the project or the company wanting to deploy a private shard, hopefully they themselves have a business model that makes sense. So there should probably be a price point where they're just willing to pay because they're making money themselves. This is probably a different profile from Web3 where it's all more open-ended and it's actually hard to capture some of the value. Which leads to my next point. Does Calimera have a token? Or if people get excited and they want to get involved, how do you foresee that value capture and generation? Currently, we don't have plans for the token. That doesn't mean that it will not change in the future. But I believe that if you launch a token, there should be a utility for the token. Either there should be a dividend yield or there should be ability to pay gas fees on the network or that there has to be some real utility behind the token. If that doesn't exist, it doesn't make to launch a token for a sake of token. And then worry about it. Token goes up, token goes down, speculators come in. And essentially, that's not something I want to worry about at this moment. Eventually... Maybe we go for an IPO, maybe we launch a token, whatever makes sense for the investors and the stakeholders and the future partners and investors, that's the decision we're going to be making. At this moment, my sole purpose and way of thinking is like, how do we build the best product and how do we monetize this product? And after that, if we decide to launch a token, we launch a token. If we decide to go on IPO or something else, we do that. Like, I, I don't want to worry about token up, down. I want to really... Think about like, how do we build real use cases and how do we find the value and bring as many developers as we can. That's good to hear. In a very practical way, that makes me bullish. I've got no way to act in my bullishness. 
No, I, I think that's definitely the way to go. It's reminiscent in some ways of the early days of Aurora. Aurora launches without a token. And for a while, there was no token or no talk of a token. Eventually, they figured out governance structure and other doing things that are around Aurora Plus. I'm just thinking that private shards by de definition are different. You don't really have the same governance incentives or need for a structure because people have their private shards and they're more self-contained and self-governing, I guess, in some ways. Exactly. We have discussed some ideas, potential, and we are brainstorming and we are always open to it. I never say no to things, except in some very specific cases, then I say no immediately. But I like to keep my mind open-minded. And if that's the way to go, we go that way, similar to Aurora, but currently that's not the strategy. Fair enough. As a private sharding solution and we've teased a little bit the profile that some of these shards may have they may be web to companies governments or whatever the case may be how do you see the role of community once you hit mainness and with the strong relationship between the near and the calimatless technology stacks how do you see the opportunities for the community to get involved do we rely on that grassroots marketing or is this more of a corporate solution that may be runs at different rails. I don't think it's corporate only. I think it's two, two sides of the point. One is for developers, for startups, for SMBs, for DAOs. And the other side is the enterprise. We want to have two separate types of product, one very tailored to enterprises and governments and institutions. On the other side, we want to have this console, which is free to everybody. Also, the plan is to have a free testnet account so everybody can get a free testnet chart. I start developing for free. Yes, we have to do some optimizations before we launch. But once we get there, the idea is anybody can create a console account. Anybody can deploy applications on testnet. And then for mainnet, there is cost which we need to charge for. But we really want to make developer-friendly, community-friendly. Anybody who wants to build on top of Calimero should be able to try it out and see if it works for them or not. That is amazing. Depending on the video editing times. The main launch may actually happen before we release the video. We may actually time it to happen around the same dates, but I'm very excited. I actually can't wait, especially I know that in the near ecosystem, there is the Meta Beetle hackathon going on now. This is the third one. That's eight weeks. Maybe it's a bit late for that one. I know that the Banyan Collective in the US is hosting one hacker house per month. So it'd be really cool to maybe have some Calimero bounties and see what people start tweaking, even if it's just on testnet. That's in the work. We are working, talking to Banyan to start being, Calimero being a part of the global hackathons they're running in, in the US as well. So yeah, there will be opportunities and bounties coming up. Amazing. I'll introduce you as well to the Open Web Academy. They are in Mexico. They're about to host their first hacker house in Puerto Vallarta, which should be a very similar structure to Banyan Collective. They've got a strong community there, developers that being working with near and strong focus in education for over a year or so. Yeah, happy to make the introduction and get Calimero into as many ecosystems as possible with my referral code. That's <laughs> front <laughs> We started during daylight, now it's already night. So I hope you don't mind the camera is... No, no, it, it, this is fading you out, but... <laughs> That's <laughs> no, it's all good. I know there are electricity shortages or whatever is happening in Europe, so there's no need to turn on the lights. Sadly, as we reach the end of the podcast, I do have a few questions from notes that have been taken sparingly throughout. This could be as brief or as extended as you want, but yeah, we'll be touching on some things that you've mentioned. 
Is that okay? Sounds good. Sounds good. So for the first one, because I am also a past startup founder and mine were also not successful, but I learned a ton. I used to tell people that my failed startup was basically my master's degree and it really fueled where I am now. I was wondering if you could give us maybe some insight into the nature of the startups or maybe some of the biggest lessons that you drew from them or how they sent you off in different directions. So I had two startups. One was a gaming startup. Second one was an AI startup. And now third one is a blockchain startup. So all the hype cycles, I tried to build a startup. What I learned the most, like uh, one thing which I think helped us with the link Mero was like, we had proof that we can ship. Like we had a track record. The startups, which I founded before I was much younger and I didn't have that much experience. We were pretty good engineers and we obviously get some other soft skills, which we build out through history, but we were pretty good engineers back then. But like build a track record that like we shown Eric near and with Facebook and some other companies that like we can build things. Also, I think like building the great team is very important. All my past experiences from my previous startups and also for the companies I, I worked for, I met a lot of great people. Uh, from Facebook, from Google, from Uber, from Tesla, from the other startups. And the, these people are uh, amazing. And we just had the opportunity to hire the best people from various industries. And some of them knew about Web3. Some of them uh, learned very quickly about Web3. These are the two things. And I think one thing which I learned, it's like customer experience is the most important thing. Usually people start a startup and uh, you don't talk enough to the customers and if you hear stuff you, you don't like, you usually get depressed and uh, you this dismantle this, this feedback. But really listening to people and if it doesn't work for them, it doesn't work for them. If you think it doesn't work for you, you should not take the customer, not work with them in this stage because this, uh, it is, at least it's, a, it's for us in an early stage, it's really pinning down who are the right people for Calimero and who are the people Calimero is the right product for. And then expanding from there. I think these are three things which are most important for us. And obviously like monetization, eventually, like how do you get revenue? Are people willing to pay for it? How much are people willing to pay for it? That's something which we're st still trying to figure out. Pricing models are hard. Like we have people who are willing to pay for it. But the question is how many people in the world or enterprises can you find? And what are the use cases? I believe there's many infinite. Just the question is like, how do you approach it? What use case? How do you sell it? to them. And these are like the problems you, you should think about, like your user experience essentially in, in, in a way. And I think in the web space, we have to do that more. I could not agree more. I actually don't know if you knew, but this podcast actually started out of the product industry experience guild, which I started and ran briefly last year. That's why it is called wild user interviews. The original idea was to try to basically open source these conversations so that anyone could have access to them and fast track their learning. And I still think that's very important because as we mentioned before, in a different context, either you can learn from the school of life. It's a hard way to learn. It may take you more time, even lose some money, have some bruises, or you could learn from others, but especially younger founders and the younger Web3 movement, it is a little bit concerning that we don't really talk that product language enough, talking about the users enough. There's a well-known saying that if everyone is a user, you have no users. When you talk to teams and you ask them like, hey, who are you building this for? This is for the entire world. You literally don't have a single user that. <laughs> so it's good to know that you guys have really honed those lessons in. You're also hiring from companies where this is basically all they speak about. 
to the point where it basically becomes a meme. I think that leads to my next question. See, I've always had a strong theory for Nier that because some of the core team founders, et cetera, come from big tech, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, they actually have by default a lot of this product approach. It's not just engineering, as you mentioned, you would solve that. It's actually the go-to-market. Could be anything. Even if you're not the marketing expert, you know what you need. And I've personally seen some efforts right now of trying to bring in people for those roles, et cetera. So I guess that you've got the Facebook experience. There is one thing now that I'd love to get your insights that it is getting proper dark now. <laughs> yeah, you basically completely faded away. Right, so I was going to fall asleep. Very fine. <laughs> yeah, I think that Nier has always had that advantage, even though it's a very early ecosystem and there's other challenges that we have. There's a trend recently, though, which I'm wondering how it is going to impact the Web3 ecosystem or how we should think about it. The first one would be the Facebook Libra project and the move language that they created, how it was not successful internally for whatever reasons, could have been regulators, could have been anything else. And then those teams spinning out Facebook to start uh, Aptos and Sui. And the second trend would be with the current state of the economy, a lot of these big tech companies uh, freezing hiring and even having some rounds of layoffs. So that would potentially be new talent entering Web3. So I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts or views on that. Maybe you have some former colleagues going to these projects. I don't know if you've had the chance to look into their tech stack. Essentially, yeah, I usually, uh, I have actually some friends who, who work there and, and colleagues, but like, like when something, usually I just see something like on Twitter when it's happening, I don't really follow that much other projects or other layer ones because I really don't have time. And like, I think Steve Jobs said that once you start focusing on competition and thinking about others, then you start building subpar products. So I, I really think we at Near try to think about our users and our ecosystem and how do we build. So I cannot really comment on Sui and Aptos because I really don't know enough about them. Like the topics we discussed with Solana, I just made a comment because it was actual and I, that's one of my opinions when it happens. But for these two, like, I just don't have enough information. They raised a lot of capital, both from FTX. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm a bit skeptical, honestly. I am skeptical because I don't know. I don't know how much is it Libra and Novi behind it and how much is it actually people. So if I knew, I would. But I'm skeptical. Like, if you ask me which projects I would consider are the current ones who are in the system, and I think there's like enough layer ones at the moment, but maybe they do a really good job and good luck. And we'll see. Good luck. Yeah, that's good. Really appreciate the honesty of just not having enough information to comment. I'm the same, actually. That's why I was asking you. I've seen it named everywhere from a ecosystem community person. I am able to identify the hype of people that have bags to pump, of people that just want to get early. But then I've been around for long enough that I can see the gaps in the technology that place limits to either scalability or building good user experiences. So I guess I'm probably less prone to jump on the hype and more critical of looking at the all the key areas. Sir, I suspect we're going to have you back in the very near future, so we can always uh, touch base on those. Sir, now to 
wrap it up proper. <laughs> you mentioned that some of the content that you enjoy consuming has been censored in the past. I usually ask guests to share if they have any podcasts, books, documentaries. We've already shared two documentaries. I'll put them in the show notes. Anything that you've seen recently that you've enjoyed, you want to, especially anything that you think could help people in their Web3 journey to get a better sense of the lay of the land and just be the best version of themselves. I, I recommended like the two podcasts. So one was like about venture capital starting in, in Silicon Valley. I think that's pretty good. Triumph of the Nerds. It's an amazing documentary to watch as well. And there's like the Cypherpunk documentary. I don't know the name, but if you just Google up Cypherpunk documentary, I think it's going to pop out. Maybe a good book to read. I really like the book Profit Zone. I think it's, it's one of the best books about how to build a business ever written so far. In my opinion, I read a lot of books and this is one of my favorite books, which I would recommend to everybody. That's awesome. I'll make sure that I include them all on the show notes. And if you have any questions, I'll message you just really briefly. Oh, we just keep going on tangents. How would you describe what a cypherpunk, the cypherpunk movement? I think initially, I think it entails a lot, but for me personally, I think like cypherpunks are people who are using technology to improve the world in one way or the other. And it's, I believe it's becoming a very broad term. So for somebody, it's somebody who deeply takes about privacy, somebody who is a hacker, it could be very broad terms, but I think like mostly people who believe that technology can solve a lot of problems in the world. The question is like, what do you care about and what do you see as a problem? Interesting. Would you say that the cypherpunk movement is still alive today? I agree. I think it's more alive than ever because it just, I think in web three, there's a lot of people who are just like, they don't declare systems uh, cypherpunks, but I think ideologically they fit the profile very well. Brilliant. Do you have anything else you want to mention before we go? Not much to say. Hopefully this was interesting and hopefully you invite me one more time and hopefully I will not be in the dark by the end of the next podcast. So yes, sorry for. Hopefully we'll figure out the business model so you're going to afford to turn on the lights. <laughs> or no, no bear market anymore so I can afford it to turn it on. But yeah, that's it. Cool. That's it. Now, this is really interesting to me. I really hope that it's interesting to your listeners as well. The new ecosystem is growing and we introduced a bunch of new concepts and opportunities now. So yeah, really excited to see what comes out of this. Amazing. Thank you for inviting me one more time and yeah, hopefully to see you soon. Bye. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, well, let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.